From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Welcome to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Trujillo is in the house to answer these questions today. But the mailbag's getting light, folks, so send us an email, <laughs> openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And put Father Trujillo or Monday in the subject line, and we may get to it by the end of the program. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And as the, the aforementioned, Father John Tregilio is uh, is hustling and bustling about trying to take care of all of his responsibilities in one fell swoop. How are you? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm in between. Yes, I'm fine. <laughs> well, let's just dig right in, shall okay. we? Yes. Terry says, I was talking to a Protestant friend who leads a Bible study. <clears throat> Excuse me. Who leads a Bible study. And she teaches that the early church fathers taught about the rapture. Is this true? No. <laughs> we don't find the word rapture even mentioned by any theologian, Catholic, Protestant, or otherwise, uh, until like the 1800s. Um, it, it's a misappropriation uh, from uh, the Latin text of St. Jerome's Vulgate Bible. Uh, Jesus talks about, you know, at the end times, you know, one will be taken, one will be left behind, and the, to be taken is rapturus est in Latin. So some liberal Protestant theologian coined the phrase the rapture, but if you were to ask Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, Swingley, Huss, Cramner, or any of the uh, tr uh, you know, traditional Reformed Protestant uh, leaders, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So it's a early, con I mean, it's a late, late concept, and uh, there are no other references uh, in scripture to this alleged phenomenon uh, where one will be taken one will be left behind in the sense that uh, those who are taken are taken to heaven everyone else left behind is damned in fact it might be the opposite if if such a thing occurs you know you're you're stuck at the moment that you are uh, you die that's what we call uh, particular judgment so if you're not in the state of grace and you're taken you're taken to hell you know uh, those who are still left behind who are alive they still have an opportunity to make a final repentance to get to confession. So uh, the only time it would be uh, not to your advantage to be uh, left behind is if you're in the airplane, so to speak, <laughs> and the pilot is taken and you're you're going down. But then even there, you can make a perfect act of contrition. So, yeah, uh, look in the old um, catechism of, of Martin Luther or, uh, you know, in the Church of England. You won't find this concept of rapture there at all. Uh, sorry to give the phone numbers. Started to do it. I started, but I Get caught email myself. Address. <laughs> I caught myself. If you want to be part of a future email mailbag program, send us an email at openline at ewtn.com. James wants to know if Protestants are going to purgatory. Uh, they could. <laughs> so could Catholics. I mean, purgatory is for those who need it. Uh, those who still have some uh, attachment to uh, venial sin, uh, those people who need to have uh, a time or period of purgation, a cleansing, it's not uh, hell with a parole. Now, um, Catholics and Protestants, and you know, people of all all faiths, 
uh, if they're properly disposed and it's not through any uh, direct choice of their own, they have rejected Christ and, and, and the church. Purgatory is not something that they need to be afraid of. Uh, the same token, I'm sure there's some people who go directly to heaven, whether they're uh, of the Catholic faith or not. If Again, you know, uh, it's through Christ and through the Catholic Church that one is saved, but it's only those who are, you know, consciously, deliberately, with full uh, deliberation, reject that, that, that are uh, in, a, in a predicament. Um, Kevin writes in, My girlfriend is confused with the stances of different bishops that seem to oppose each other regarding recep reception of Holy Communion. How can I explain this? I'd like to know, too. <laughs> um, we're talking about prudential judgment here, which is, is and this is of the highest level, uh, but this is not any in any way, shape, or form an exercise of any type of uh, infallible teaching of the Church. Now, the infallible teaching is that abortion is always intrinsically evil. Uh, it, it is never condoned in any way, shape, or form. That is consistent, and that's infallible teaching of the Church. The particular application of um, canon law uh, restricting those who receive communion, uh, I think there's overwhelming evidence, canonically, theologically, and otherwise, liturgically, uh, that allows and encourages and indeed, I think, mandates that bishops and pastors, you know, refuse Holy Communion to those who obstinately and publicly, like, you know, um, there's some people of well-known repute from the person who lives in the White House today, uh, just recently, you know, came out with a dramatic statement that he is aggressively going to pursue supporting abortion and making it available any way, shape, or form. Those are instances where I think, you know, the laws of the church are very clear. But again, there's going to be some disagreement among some of the bishops um, because this is a particular application of a, of a general principle over a particular law. But in general, I'm, I think the church has always been on the side of saying that um, people who publicly and obstinately, um, and whether they're, public, whether they're a politician or not, if they're publicly known and they publicly come out supporting abortion, you know, they, need to, they themselves need to say, I can't go to communion. If they won't, uh, you know, the pastor, the, the bishop needs to do that. And it probably should be noted, huh, Father, that this is not like this is some sort of a punishment. This is an act of charity towards those individuals. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, this is a medicinal thing, just like excommunication. Excommunication, uh, you know, at first looks like it's, it's punishment, but it's punishment with the, with the same um, idea that you're hoping that the person repents. It's like when you, as a parent, punish your child, you're not doing it to be mean or to retaliate. You're doing it so they learn a lesson. And that your goal is that they say they're sorry and they say, I'm not going to do it again. In the same way, Holy Mother Church, when she says you can't receive communion or you're excommunicated, the goal and the intent is that that person repents and then they're reconciled. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Pauline says, is speaking in tongues in the charismatic movement compatible with Scripture and the Catholic Church? Well, there certainly is uh, a Catholic charismatic uh, movement in the church. Um, um, I myself am not uh, Catholic charismatic, but I have I had some parishioners who were. Um, there's been no definitive prohibition or uh, disclaimer, um, no repudiation of it. At the same token, it's not something that the church says you must you must accept. 
just like private revelation. Uh, you can you can uh, take it or leave it. If you want to believe uh, that people have that particular gift and you uh, are open to it, God bless you. But where you want to draw a line is where some people say that, well, if you don't want it or you don't believe it, then you're not Catholic. And that's not what the church teaches. No, so, no, no. Absolutely not. But I know some very good, devout, orthodox Catholic people who are also of the charismatic uh, movement. And I know the same who are... Um, um, allegiance to the uh, extraordinary form. You know, the, the church is Catholic. It's universal. Yeah, very good. Um, Indira writes in, if you don't have something to confess, should you still go to confession? Yes. I would go, but uh, in an appro- I mean, with a prudential amount. So you don't want to be going every day. Um, but if you go once a week, if you go once a month or anywhere in between, uh, we, it's called a devotional confession. If you have no mortal sins to confess, and that's the only ones you're obligated to confess all mortal sins that you you've, you committed since your last good confession. Um, you can also bring up things from the past, but only um, to make sure that you're not going to do it again. But we don't want people to start dwelling to become um, sort of scrupulous that, well, maybe I missed a detail. This is not like filing your income taxes, and now God's like the IRS, and he's going to do an audit on you when you die uh, and find some discrepancy. That's not what we believe happens. The same token, if you go to confession uh, on a frequent basis, like I said, once a week or, or every two weeks or once a month, go in there and say, I have not committed any mortal sins, but maybe there's some venial sins that you don't need to confess, but but it would be good to confess them anyway. The priest will give you some a good penance, but it's not spiritual direction. So you're not there to go over your whole spiritual life because there's people waiting in line. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith that's been bothering you that you'd like an answer to, just take a minute right now, take a deep breath, step away from what you're doing, Go to your phone or go to your computer and send us a quick email with your question. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And uh, we would be happy to get to that in a future show. Just put Monday or Father Tregilio into <clears throat> the subject line. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you'd like to keep abreast of everything going on here at EWTN, you should sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, Wings. And you can do that by simply logging on to EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Roberto writes in, Father... <clears throat> If a Catholic is not granted an annulment, can they ever remarry? Okay. Uh, if they've been previously validly married, 
um, and then they get a divorce. They they need a decree of nullity, or sometimes called an annulment, in order to get married in the secular terms uh, a second time. In the eyes of the church, it would be you're being married for the first time. So without that decree of nullity, uh, marriage has favor of the law. So it's presumed that if you got married, let's say it's a Catholic, as uh, long as there's one Catholic involved, that Catholic needs to be married by a priest or deacon or get a dispensation from the, the local bishop to be married uh, in, in what we call in another form. But if that was the case, or let's say it was two Protestants and they got married uh, anyway, shape or form, because they don't have canonical form, so two Protestants get married by Justice of the Peace or Captain, Captain Steubing on the Love Boat or uh, Judge Wapner or whatever, um, that would be a valid marriage. They would need a decree of nullity because the annulment says that it doesn't point the finger of blame. That's not the the issue at hand. It's that that marriage was invalid from day one, from the very first moment. And things they look at is, you know, was it, did both of them intend to enter into a permanent, uh, a faithful, and fruitful union? Uh, so without that, uh, you know, they are not able to get married uh, in the church. But I would say, you know, uh, Pope Francis streamlined a few things. Uh, we have a lot of more insights now psychologically because uh, one of the things that's also a component is you know, there's a lack of due competency, lack of due discretion. So somebody who's under great duress, the traditional what we call shotgun wedding, you know, the, 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 the woman is pregnant and he marries her only because she's pregnant. Uh, th- that's cons- that could be, could be uh, invalidating because uh, he's under... Um, they're both under that duress, and you need to be open, enter into marriage freely and uh, willingly. And then, of course, there is that whole matter of death. Yes, if your former spouse passes away, then you're in the clear. Um, I did have a case once when I was newly ordained that, um, you know, she never heard from her husband. They got married just before the war. He went off to war, and he never came back, and... Uh, she was uncertain, you know. They never, they didn't declare him legally dead, and uh, just she fell in love with somebody, and we were trying to, you know, look into an annulment, and all of a sudden they, there was a thing in the mail from Uncle Sam that <laughs> there was a death certificate from the, uh, Ar- the Department of the Army, so that gave her the green light to go ahead. Again, a mail, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. No phone calls today. Uh, Barry writes in, in Revelation, what does it mean at the end when it gives a curse to people who add or subtract? Uh, That was meant to keep the integrity of sacred scripture so that nobody would insert. Like, for instance, you know, there's these uh, apocryphal uh, gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Um, the, The Gospel of Mary Magdalene in particular uh, is con- is considered a, a creation, a fictitious work of the Gnostics. They were er- early uh, heretics who believed in secret knowledge. That's where the, from the word gnosis in Greek, hence they're called the Gnostics. They uh, made up their own Gospels and slid them in there for their own uh, agenda. So what the book of uh, Revelation uh, is saying is that nobody has the authority, not even the church, to insert uh, things or to remove that's why it's so uh, interesting that you know for uh, 1500 years uh, the Christian Bible you know right, had uh, you know 46 books in the Old Testament and Martin Luther and his friends pulled them out 
uh, it says there in Scripture you can't be adding or subtracting, and they were accusing the Catholic Church of inserting, and you know those seven books of the uh, Deuterocanonical uh, are considered you know part of the canon of Scripture, and they were known at the time of Christ, and they were believed by uh, at the the religious leaders at the time of Christ, and by the Christian Church. It's when you look at the Gutenberg Bible, the first Bible that was printed with uh, you know the movable type. Uh, those books are in there, so uh, I, I think that statement in there needs to be much more upheld. Again, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. John asks, do you believe that Catholics and Protestants can be reconciled, and what form might that take? I believe anything is possible because, you know, that's you know, God's grace can affect great things. Um, what I don't think will ever happen is there'll be such a compromise that, you know, the Catholic Church and the Protestant denominations are going to, you know, um, reconcile by making accommodations uh, doctrinally or morally. That that that, that cannot happen. Um, just look at all the different Protestant denominations there are. Um, we use the term Protestant Church, but there really isn't one Protestant Church. There's many Protestant churches. You've got the Lutheran Church, the Episcopalian Church, um, uh, Baptist Church, and, and so forth. For all of them, or some of them, or just one of them to reconcile, the thing is they need to come into full communion. They have partial communion with the Catholic Church because they have a valid baptism, most of them. Um, most of them have valid um, um, marriages. But they need to re uh, come into full communion by embracing, because uh, the, the Catholic Church has a fullness of truth, it has uh, sacred scripture and sacred um, tradition, and the fullness of grace, all seven sacraments. So it's not like a merger between Microsoft and Apple, where each one gives and takes a little bit here. Um, and it's not that we're saying that we're right and they're wrong. It's like we have the fullness of what God has to offer, the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth. So any of the denominations that want to embrace that, and look at how many Anglican and Episcopalian converts, not just individuals, but whole parishes. Look at the bishops of the Church of England who have uh, come into full communion. Uh, that's a testimony. But in no, none of those cases did the church say, well, you want to come into communion with us, we'll drop this, you add that, or whatever. It doesn't work that way. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you'd like to be part of a future Open Line mailbag show, Send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Walter writes in, my manager at work doesn't believe in the Trinity. How can I convince him in a way that the Trinity exists? Well, it is a mystery, so you're never going to argue someone to believe it. But what St. Thomas Aquinas and Holy Mother Church have always wanted us to do is to show that it's reasonable all right, it's a mystery, but it doesn't contradict reason. Now, three persons and one God is something that's beyond our comprehension, but it's not repugnant to our reason. And we can look at, uh, you know, what is the relationship of father and son? Well, obviously, it's so relational that you can't use words like father or son without the other. You know, you're not a father unless you've got a son or daughter, and if you're a son or daughter, you have to have a father and a mother. So the relationship of father and son uh, complements each other so much that if you're always the father, then there must have always been a son. And the mutual love of the father and son 
uh, is the Holy Spirit. And each of those three persons, all right, are distinct but not separate. They have the same divine intellect, same will. What one knows, all three know. What one wants, all three want. Uh, but there's a distinction, and um, more than that, we we don't we're not able to comprehend. Um, now, Saint Patrick used the shamrock uh, with, with the pagans in in Ireland. It's not an absolute uh, foolproof analogy, but but it works. Uh, one I found helpful too is, you know, the the human trinity, uh, which is analogous to the divine holy trinity. The human trinity is. A man falls in love with a woman, and so they become husband and wife, and their love for each other is so uh, intense that it, it then has, uh, they procreate, have a, a child. That child is the, is the fruit of their mutual love. That's a glimpse into uh, what we call the Holy Trinity, or uh, some later theologians use a distinction between the imminent and economic trinity, imminent being how the persons relate to each other, and the economic trinity is how they're revealed. So in the in the Old Testament, we see God the Father who creates, God the Son who uh, redeems, and God the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. But all three are always uh, always present. Um, Ron would like to know, he said, Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But in the book of Ephesians, St. Paul said Jesus came to abolish the law. Is this a contradiction? No, because they're talking about two different types of law. Um, Jesus himself said, not St. Paul, Jesus himself said, I've come not to abolish but fulfill the law. What law is he fulfilling? Well, he keeps referring to the law and the prophets. The law is the Ten Commandments, uh, the Old Covenant. The laws that St. Paul's referring to is all those mosaic laws and uh, things that most of them were, were composed by the religious leaders uh, of the uh, Hebrew faith. And they were fine at the time, like all the dietary laws, you know, that they don't eat pork, they don't eat shellfish, um, you know, they're, they're very particular on what they eat and the, the, the scrupulous uh, washings of, of their utensils and eating things. Those were fine at the time, but those are part of the old law and even the law of circumcision, that you had to be circumcised in order to show your allegiance to the covenant. Well, that's the old covenant. So uh, when Jewish converts became Christian, they were already circumcised, but the Greek and the Roman and the other pagan converts, there was a controversy, should they be circumcised? Should they follow the uh, dietary laws? And the Council of Jerusalem, which is mentioned in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, makes it clear that it's that's the old law, those uh, particular things that uh, are outside the divine positive and the natural moral law, which we find basically in the Ten Commandments. Why do you think it is, Father, that that people find f- they they have a problem with the Ten Commandments? If you read over the Ten Commandments, <laughs> show show me the detriment to society if you follow I those. <laughs> I mean, they're 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 kind of fair. <laughs> I mean, certainly like honoring your father and mother, keeping home with the Sabbath day. There's nothing about, unjust about, not about killing that. folks. How about that? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not. And here's the here's here's the beautiful part of it. Um, the Ten Commandments, the, the last seven of them in the Catholic Lutheran numbering system, the last seven are basically in the natural moral law. So that was known even before Moses got the Ten Commandments. Remember, Moses himself had a high tailor out of out of Egypt because he murdered someone. And you know, he couldn't say to, to God, oh, I, you didn't give me the Ten Commandments yet, so, I'll, you know, there's a loophole, <laughs> let me loose. 
<laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Well, it's a very special mailbag edition today of EWTN's <laughs> Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. If you would like to be part of a future mailbag program, it's really easy. All you have to do is meander over to your computer, uh, type in the email address openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Type your question, send it off, and it may be part of the next mailbag that we do here on EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Freddie writes in, I strongly believe that humanity has been a catalyst for climate change. Most spiritual people get frustrated with me about this. Is there room in Catholicism for this belief? Oh, I would say yes. I mean, because this is not an article of faith. Uh, this is the purview of science. And, you know, um, Fides et Ratio, you know, it's a wonderful uh, encyclical, makes it clear that, you know, both are true. They come from the same source, uh, God who is truth itself. So empirical science, philosophical uh, logic and theological um, teaching and doctrine, revealed truth, they complement each other. But each one has its own discipline. So empirical science is based on, you know, experimentation, observation. And scientists have changed their, you know, opinions on things almost every other day. So that's the way they work. So if science could, or scientists could prove that, Human beings in some way have contributed to climate change. That's their business. I mean, you know, I I, I did I was a chemistry major in, in, in college seminary, but uh, that doesn't give me any advantage uh, in the priesthood and vice versa. But from a personal standpoint and from my little uh, scientific background, I don't think there's enough evidence to show that, but that's a personal private opinion of myself. And if uh, scientists come out and say, yes, we can establish that, okay. Um, you know, one time they thought the world was flat, now we know it's not. Uh, that was never a teaching of the church as terms of dogma. Uh, that was an opinion uh, that most human beings had at one time based on what they knew. The more we find out, that's why when they send those Hubble telescopes uh, into the outer space and, you know, the Voyager and all the things they, they, they are doing on Mars and everything else, the more information they have, the more they can fine-tune their theories. But also, some hypotheses need to be thrown thrown out or revised. Uh, you know, the Newtonian physics that you know we ran ourselves on, that even got us to the moon, had to be refined and tweaked with, with Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, and even that had to be tweaked and refined, because now we've got all this uh, subatomic uh, information. So, if somebody disagrees with you, they're allowed to, but at the same token, you're allowed to hold your position. Uh, this is a scientific uh, area that the church, you know, is is not going to make uh, an official pronouncement on. How many elements were on the periodic table when you studied chemistry? <laughs> I'm not going to say because it's embarrassing. <laughs> we had a, I had a chemistry professor, and she was beloved. 
uh, in <laughs> fact, a couple years after I had her, she she died during Whoa. a lecture. Uh, but Whoa, she, that's the way to go. <laughs> yeah, she had been there forever, and we always speculated that the reason she got into chemistry in the first place is that there were only three or four elements on the periodic table when she started. <laughs> so she was she was ancient just of the, days. In, just the inert gases. <laughs> that's right. She was she was ancient of days. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. So we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, Carol writes in, Father. She says, "My brother was murdered years ago." Oh. And I was wondering if there was any justice or compensation he will receive in death. This has been a barrier in my relationship with God. Well, certainly those who who, who uh, die such a tragic way, and you know, it's it's. I mean, it's, I had a brother who died from muscular dystrophy, and I had another brother who died uh, as an innocent victim of uh, underage drunk driver and a road rage guy. So I know what it's like when you've got. I mean, both of them are losses. Um, there's that unfinished stuff uh, that complicates it when you've got someone who dies, not just tragically, but also because uh, there's a gross injustice. You know, uh, or somebody, I knew someone who was diagnosed with cancer, but the doctor made a misdiagnosis beforehand, and they could have probably have gone into remission, but they didn't do it in time. So when there's an injustice, and particularly a murder is is of the highest level, God's mercy is so infinite that, you know, he's going to take everything into consideration and, uh, you know, like when the tragic uh, event happens when someone takes their own life, God knows their mental state better than we do. He knows how much they knew, what they were capable of. That's why we leave people in the mer- in the hands of the mercy of God. Um, I know it takes time to... Um, Get, I mean, you never get over this something like that because nor should you, but you gotta at some point let go, uh, let go of uh, the baggage, the hurt, um, and say okay. But I'm pr- I'm praying to God that my brother's in in a better place, and certainly offering offering masses and prayers for him because if he's in purgatory, he's guaranteed to go to heaven. But you could help him get there sooner. So I would say don't overlook that. You know, I mean, you you, you might be a little bummed out at God because this happened, but don't neglect your brother by praying for him now. Um, we got an email from Nathaniel, and he asks, what does it mean that the Mass is a sacrifice, and how does someone participate in this sacrifice? Okay, uh, well, the Council of Trent made it very clear, and it's in our current catechism, um, the Mass is the unbloody reenactment of Calvary. So at the Mass... What happens is the exact words of Christ are used that were used at the Last Supper. And notice there are two separate consecrations. The priest consecrates the bread, then he consecrates the wine. He doesn't do them simultaneously together. He doesn't say, this is my body and my blood. So the separate consecration, when you separate body from blood, what happens? You have death. Someone bleeds to death, okay? I'm, I'm on a blood thinner, so I'm nervous when I cut myself. So that separation of the two is the reenactment of what happened on Calvary. Jesus died, okay? But he didn't stay dead. He rose. So when we come to communion, we're not receiving the flesh and blood of a dead person. This is the risen Christ. So almost instantaneously after you have the separation of the body from blood and you've got the death of Christ that happened on Good Friday, we also have Easter Sunday immediately because once the consecration takes place, it's the risen Lord. That's why Jesus is present in both 
the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine. He he has he didn't stay dead. He rose on on Easter. So it's the sacrifice of Calvary reenacted. It's not a duplication, but Jesus said, "Do this in memory of me." He commanded us to do that, and Saint Paul made it very clear. Uh, so does um, all the fathers of the church, uh, Saint Irenaeus, and all of them that this is what the Christian community did every week. All right, They got together for what they called the breaking of the bread, which is another way we call the Mass. It was the most ancient term. How do you and I participate? Well, uh, you as a member of the faithful, you do that by placing yourself with the gifts on the altar, and you're saying to God, I surrender all I have, all I am to you, O Lord. It's a symbolic gesture on our part, but it's nonetheless real. So you're saying, I'm not in charge. My will is not important. It's God's will. I want to do what he wants, not what I want. Now, I, as the priest, I offer up the bread and the wine that become the body and blood of Christ. But also, as a member of the faithful, because I'm still one of those too, I have to offer myself on the altar too, symbolically, and say, yes, Lord, do with me as you will. I'm not the boss. You are. Uh, Ellen writes in, how can I help friends who are same-sex attracted, so they will turn from their sin but not run away from the church. Well, there is a wonderful group called Courage. Uh, I would say, there you go to the website, and um, there's a wonderful support for uh, not only people. CourageRC.com, I believe, yes. is the website. I'll confirm that as you pontificate. Well, that is an excellent, it, unlike Dignity and some other groups that uh, give um, carte blanche to what they want to do, um, courage encourages people to remain chaste. So the analogy I like to make is, you know, what if you're, you fall in love with someone, but you can't get married because, um, you know, there's a same-sex attraction or, uh, you know, they're too uh, closely um, related to you, all right? Uh, you know, there's a reason why those prohibitions exist. It's not just... Uh, you know, God uh, on a whim said, I don't want uh, men to marry men or women to marry, marry women, or I don't want you to marry your brother or sister. I don't want you to have more than one wife or, or husband. There's a reason for that. But in the instant that people feel, well, you know, this is what, what I'm called to, God's calling you to a life of chastity. Men, one man, one woman is constitutive part of the sacrament of matrimony. That doesn't mean we don't love people outside of marriage. We certainly do, but it, not in the same way. So you can have a close friendship, but it doesn't need to be physical or intimate because that's reserved and exclu- exclusively reserved for husband and wife who are uh, validly married. But the same token is you can have lots of people that, that you love without it, without it being physical or conjugal. And I think the problem is that you know society wants people to think, well, if you have these feelings, then you could take them to any direction you want. Absolutely not, you know, and we've got examples where, you know, people who were religious or um, married had good, wholesome, uh, chaste friendships, but it didn't uh, digress itself into any type of adultery or fornication. Very good, and that address is actually CourageRC.org. So CourageRC for Roman Catholic dot org. Uh, Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, Dave writes in, I want to pray more, but it's hard to jumpstart my prayer life and make it a routine. Do you have any suggestions? I would say 
get your iPhone or whatever, your Android, whatever you have your normal um, scheduling for. Like, say, I had a, de- a doctor's appointment today. I have to put that down. I have to remind myself. I have to see it in print. And then it reminds me. There's a little, you know, the thing shakes or it reminds you. Well, do that with your prayer life. Schedule it. Um, you know, try the mornings. If that doesn't work, then try the evenings. But you have to take this seriously in the same way you would take a dental appointment, a barber shop, uh, anything. You know, I got to get my car's oil changed <laughs> tomorrow. I had to make a, an appointment. Well, make an appointment with God. I mean, you know, some people think that sounds a little too formal, but we're creatures of habit and we need that routine. We need that consistency. So if you're making appointments that you could obviously adjust, all right, you're not, it's not etched in stone, but don't make it capricious and just say, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to pray in the morning. When? Okay, here at the seminary, we have no choice. We all have to go there at the same time. They ring the bells, you show up. But for many lay people... You don't have that. You're not all going to be praying at the same time. There's not Those church bells are not ringing in your house. So use the electronic advantages you have now. Or if you're one of the Luddites, crank up your wind-up uh, alarm clock and set a time. Again, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. No phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, uh, give, us a, uh, give us a little jingle <laughs> via electronic mail at uh, openline at EWTN.com. And be sure to tune in tomorrow for Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Father Wade will be talking about anger and right anger. Uh, So that's tomorrow, Open Line Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Mike writes in, Jesus does not mention physical water when he speaks of baptism to the woman at the well. And again in John's Gospel, why does the Catholic Church require baptism with water? <laughs> well, the fact that they use physical water, uh, I think itself testifies that that's you know, that's the proper interpretation. I mean, uh, remember the, the the eunuch that was in the, in the chariot, and uh, you know, uh, one of the apostles was talking to him, and at the end he says, "What's this prevent me from being uh, baptized?" And he said, "And there's some water." Okay, not nebulous, uh, metaphorical water, physical water. And St. John the Baptist used water. His baptism wasn't a sacrament, but it was a precursor to what Jesus uh, instituted. And it was physical water. And the word baptize is from the Greek word baptizein, which means to, to wash. And one washes with water. So from day one, you know, uh, Christians were physically baptized in water, all right, uh, no other substance uh, would be would be valid. So although there's an analogous uh, terminology that we certainly see in Scripture, the fact is that church herself, and then it was later defined uh, infallibly, all right, the Council of Trent, that one must use and only use water for baptism. But the Council of Trent wasn't the first one to, to believe that. That was going back to the apostles themselves, because we see no instance where someone was baptized without water. Uh, very good. Scott writes in, I had a Protestant pastor tell me that by accepting sacred cr- tradition, you inherently say the Bible is insufficient by action. How do I respond? Well, that's a not what we saw a non-sacred to our philosophical terms. It, do, it doesn't make sense. Um, where, in the, where in sacred scripture does it tell you 
what books are in there. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John doesn't don't say, hey, and by the way, after you read me, read the other three. Okay, <laughs> there's there's no table of contents in Scripture. The publisher puts one in, but who determined exactly what books got in there and in what order were are where they to be put in? It wasn't in the text itself, so there must be an, a, another authority that complements that works with sacred scripture, and that's sacred tradition. So sacred tradition is the one that determined these books are in, those books are not, so we don't have the Gospel of Thomas, but certainly the Book of Tobit uh, is in uh, in the in the Old Testament, part of the part of the Bible. Even the the chapter and verse, when the scriptures were originally written by the sacred authors, there was no punctuation, there was no chapter and verse. So if you want to be a, a strict uh, conformist, you'd have to say, let's get rid of all the numbers, and let's not, you know, say what books are in there. Well, you can't do that. There's, you have to have a system. You have to have, uh, and Jesus said, he who hears you hears me. He gave authority to the church not to contradict, not to be superior to, but to be the guardian. So the hierarchy, the magisterium works with um, the Holy Spirit and both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. They're not in competition any more than sodium and chlorine are in competition to form salt. I just showed my chemistry background. <laughs> uh, but doesn't the Bible say that sacred scripture is the pillar and bulwark of the faith? Pillar and bulwark doesn't mean that it's the sole authority, though. Well, it it complements. Actually, the Bible says the church is the pillar and bulwark of the faith. So thanks for nothing, Father John. Oh, well, sure. <laughs> Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, Mark says Genesis chapter 6 states that the Lord regretted making living things. If God is perfect, how can he regret making living creatures, human or animal? Well, we have to remember, okay, that uh, the sacred scriptures, which are inerrant and infallible and inspired and revealed, okay, also use literary forms. So there's figures of speech that are used. So like Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I haven't seen anybody, I mean, if that were absolutely true and you had to strictly interpret that, a lot of us would have no eyes, forget about just losing one eye, and you'd have uh, other things chopped off. So the, it's a figure of speech when God said he, because obviously he, intend, he knew what he was doing. He intended to create. When man rebelled, then there was a disruption in creation. So this idea of God regretting, that's an anthropomorphic uh concept that's in there uh it's used to convey a, a message but it's not the same as saying that this is a theological premise again a special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line monday we're not taking your phone calls if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition send us an email open line at ewtn.com Paul says, when we die, we are either buried or cremated, but we are not allowed to spread ashes. However, with saints, we separate their bodies and leave them in churches, travel with them, and all kinds of other things. How yes. do we reconcile this? Because a saint is someone that's been officially declared a saint, and so when the Pope canonizes uh, a saint, then their relics are allowed to be out for uh, uh, public uh, devotion. We don't worship, but we give them um, dulia, which is, is reverence or um, devotion to them. 
But if you're not a saint, you can't be, you know, you can't have grandma's uh, uh, toenails up on the <laughs> reliquary, all right? And only someone, I mean, even today, when someone's in the process of canonization, all right, like Fulton J. Sheen, they're not chopping up his body now, saying, well, once he gets canonized, we're going to have the, all these things ready to go. It's only after canonization that they can do that. Um, so there's a difference between taking ashes, which are the body that was then cremated, and then scattering them is, 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 is perceived or considered um, disrespectful because it, it, it questions or at least gives um, repugnance to the resurrection. Whereas with saints... Anything, a first class is a part of their body, a second class is something that they used or touched, and a third is something that was uh, uh, like a piece of cloth that was touched to a first class uh, relic. The relics are means of devotion. Ashes, we're not using those as devotion. And so they need to be buried uh, in the earth in a container or even at sea in a container. Scattering is not allowed, uh, but there's no, no way, shape, or form that this is in any way analogous to um, the use of relics. So our producer, Michael McCall, in his infancy, was babysat by Mother Angelica. Oh. If she were ever to be canonized, <laughs> would that make him a second-class relic? <laughs> well, <laughs> he could be second-class. I don't know if he's a second-class relic. But <laughs> I know people good. ask that, but that's that's a good question because, you know, I, I, I shook John Paul... John Paul's uh, second's hand, and you wonder, ooh, now, now I'm a, now I'm a relic. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work that way. I mean, again, yeah, that's, that's not what they mean when people call you a relic, Father. Yes, and um. you have to be already a saint for that to work. That that the saint then um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can become a, a second or third class. Yeah. 833-288. What am I doing? <laughs> There's not enough time for phone calls, even if we were taking phone calls, yes. but we're not. It's a mailbag edition. I'm a, I'm a creature of habit, Father. Uh, Bob writes in, how does a venerated individual become a saint? Okay, you need one more, you need one established miracle after death to be beatified, a blessed, and then you need a second one to be canonized. Now, in the early days, like when I was in high school seminary, you needed three miracles uh, to be uh, canonized. Uh, the church is uh, streamlined a, a little bit. So to be venerable is someone who's uh, went from the servant of God to the, the next step, which is just before beatification. And so there, you can uh, give devotion to a venerable, but uh, there's, they have no holy day established, and uh, they don't have, um, uh, there's no public devotion in terms of having, you know, recitation of prayers, but you can... Uh, promote their cause is what you can obviously do. So they it, they go through a thorough investigation of all the things that this person did, wrote, and and that and then they uh, determined to recommend it to the, the Holy Father. And he decides, should they be uh, beatified or, or should they be canonized? And talk about the difference between a private devotion or a private cult, as they call it, versus a public cult, and when are they appropriate? Okay, the public cult, and we don't we use the word very restrictively. Cult not being like you know like Jonestown, some weirdos. Uh, cult from the cultus, all right, from the Latin, which which means uh, a part of one's um, devotion. So public cult, public devotion, uh, like having a litany, uh, a holy day, and have a church named after you. 
that the church has to decide. Privately, you can believe someone is uh, holy and probably and hopefully you want them to become a saint. So you have a private cult. Um, and that just means that the church has not officially declared that they're in the pipeline. But certainly this person, and they may very well be in heaven as you as you speak, but you could still have devotion. So you can pray to your grandmother. You can pray to Mother Angelica uh, until the day, you know, even well after she gets canonized. But in the meantime, don't think you can only pray to the, the canonized uh, saints or even just the beatified. So the private cult, the private devotion, we can have for anyone that's not been officially prohibited. And the church hasn't done that in any any regard. But for public, for, say, to have a... Uh, in the parish, to have a, a novena for someone uh, in their honor, they have to be at least, you know, um, recognized officially by the church. And finally, Theodore writes in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I of myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What does he mean? You know, he's good for metaphor, <laughs> speaking analogously. Um, you know, Jesus himself said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So St. Paul is using a play on words because, you know, remember, he was of the Pharisee uh, group uh, when he was a, a Jew. Um, so it's a play on words. He's not saying, that you know, the, the law of sin. He's talking about the fact that, you know, we typically, we become uh, creatures of habit, and we tend to do, like St. Augustine said, you know, uh, I don't do what, what I I, I should do, I do what I want to do that may not be what I should be doing. And the temptation to do wrong can be strong, concupiscence. So wanting to do God's will needs grace in order for it to be effective. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, Ephilius, and Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Trujillo, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it next Monday live, and we'll be with Father Wade tomorrow on EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Until then, God bless.